Thrones Cast Cast Game of Thrones It's Josh Talks Thrones. Yes. Yes. Yes, I just did that. I did warn you guys, right? I warned you. Egret, Jon Snow theme. Game of Thrones. This is Josh Talks Thrones. My name is Josh. Today, we are talking about Game of Thrones, Season 5, Episode 2, The House of Black and White, where Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder live. An eternal yin and yang. No, technically, wait, no. That Technically, that's ebony and ivory. And I have no proof that the doors of this house are made of ebony and ivory, though it's totally possible. It's consistent with the medieval time period on this fantasy planet. Guys, I think that was a livelier episode than last week. I'm, again, you know, not going to talk crap on last week. I really, I really thought that was a solid season premiere, but we talked about this. We talked about how Game of Thrones season premieres are always a little bit of a teaser, a little bit of a getting the gears to grind slowly but surely. We got introduced to all, you know, all these familiar places and familiar characters again. Best not to overload you with too much, you know, if we got to Bravos and Dorne in that first episode. It might have been a lot to take in. But here, we're starting to get a little bit of excitement. A few excellent set pieces. A whole lot of business with elections and small council chambers. I don't know if that excites you guys, but it excites me, strangely enough. And yes, new places. We get to see Dorne, and we really get to see Bravos. Yes, we have seen Bravos before, briefly. We got to see the bank. But here, getting our first glimpse, we get to see now, get to know Bravos as a city. Instead of gliding over the Titan, we're passing underneath it. We're seeing the bazaars. The people, ground level, Arya Stark level. This is, uh, I'll make no secret, this is the my favorite storyline in Dance with Dragons. Probably the best post-Storm of Swords storyline George R.R. R. Martin has done. Mostly when I've talked about my excitement for Game of Thrones Season 5, I've talked about how excited I am that we're going to be exploring new territory. Which, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you, a little bit of new territory was explored here too. Excellent. For the most part, there weren't a whole lot of these storylines for the books that I was like, man, I really got to see that on screen. What happens with Arya and Bravos, though, is certainly one of them. Maybe the only one. She's already become this badass assassin. She's like, she's basically like a genius, too. She's like possibly the smartest character on this show when you take into account her age. It's easy to see what the faceless men would see in her as a potential recruit. She's completely fearless, as you see in this episode. Maybe not completely. As she steps off the boat and look, overlooks the house of black and white, you see her say, I'm not afraid, but you see a little bit of fear on her face. That's because she's smart, and this is a place full of people you should be afraid of. But she doesn't back down. She stays at that door for a day and a night. And then essentially, at, by standing up to those guys in the bazaar, she passes the faceless man test. Now, I don't remember from the books, but I don't think whichever faceless man she meets who trains her 
is the man we know as Jack and Hagar. It's entirely possible, of course. And I mean, all of the men, I think, blur together on purpose, because none of them are really supposed to have any sort of identity. Still, a man is happy to see Jack and Hagar back. A man thinks that actor who plays him, who looks a little bit like Nick Kroll with long hair, is very good at and became, I think, a kind of a little bit of a fan favorite for a reason, and it's good to see his face again. Ha! Face. I realize what he just said. Speaking of, the first time we saw the man who was not Jack and Hagar pull that face trick, we didn't actually see the face. It looked essentially like magic, pure magic. And I think what they did on screen was, you know, basically just replace a man with another man. At the very least, use CGI. Which is essentially digital magic. Here, very subtle, but you got to see a little bit of the face come off. It's a sense that there is more more science than magic to what they're doing with the whole face thing. Or at the very least, something similar to the movie Darkman. Just, you know, really good face tech. But used very effectively to create an air of mystery. Bravos is one of the most modern-feeling, maybe the most modern-feeling location in Westeros, or... Well, not in Westeros, but in the larger martin universe. I feel like it's essentially supposed to stand in for America. Or what we would, you know, at least recognize as like the modern new world. For one thing, Titan of Bravos, Statue of Liberty, right? Then also the fact that the most dominant institution in Bravos is the Iron Bank. The best capitalists in the world are in Bravos. Just like in our world, the best capitalists are in America. There's a sense that and this is partly gleaned from reading A World of Ice and Fire, the, this giant big thick George R.R. R. Martin guidebook. If you haven't read it, it's actually totally worth it. But it, it, it really dives into, you know, like the history of like every facet of Westeros. And what they say about Bravos is really interesting, which is that it's, you know, it's the newest of all these places. It's the most recently, um, the most recently founded created by a mix of former slaves of all different races and nationalities from all across the globe. A melting pot, if you will. Sound familiar? There's a sense that Bravos is kind of ascendant in this world. And Westeros, which is, I guess in some ways supposed to be a stand-in for England, but we, we can basically think of it as a stand-in for Europe, is so full of horrors because it's kind of on this seraphic decline. Anyways, there's two big institutions Bravos is known for. It's got, the, it's got the Iron Bank, but also the Faceless Men, the House of Black and White. They've got their military bite. Well, not exactly military, though, right? Not exactly mercenaries like the Golden Company, either. That aspect actually almost feels more Japanese than anything else. But still, even though that's the Far East, it's almost like it's so East, it's West, you know? I think of that... I think of America and Japan both as kind of the Ascendant West. Anyway, we're way off topic at this point. Very, very excited to see what's going on with Arya in the rest of this storyline. Brings us to Littlefinger and Sansa and Brienne of Tarth. Really just a glimpse of Littlefinger and Sansa. Enough to continue establishing, yes, Sansa's a little bit savvier now. And learning to kind of play this game. And learning to even, it, seems, it feels like, manipulate Littlefinger a little bit. But they don't get much of a chance to talk because Brienne, it turns out it wasn't a tease when we saw them pass by Sansa last episode. It was foreshadowing that they're in the same area. They're eventually going to find each other. 
Brienne Im- immediately tells Podrick, you know, go ready to hor- the horses. And Pod says, are you sure that's a good idea, milady? And Brienne is like, just do what I say, because I'm going to be gallant, though I'm not especially smart. As I've been rewatching Game of Thrones lately, I've started to mentally classify every character on, on kind of a modified like Dungeons and Dragons scale. I've realized kind of a better application in in this world is instead of good evil and lawful chaotic as your two axes, you could basically rank him good evil and smart stupid. Every character is both good, neutral and mixed, or evil, and smart, average, and pretty dumb. Arya, I would rank, despite her violent tendencies, a smart good. Ramsay Bolton is a smart evil. Joffrey Baratheon, R.I.P., was a stupid evil. And you have Ned Stark as the classic stupid good, to be later succeeded by Sansa Stark, until recently. You could, I, I could keep going like this. Tyrion is basically a smart neutral. So is Bronn. Though he's not as smart as Tyrion, he'd still go in the smart category. Cersei is average evil, leaning towards average mixed. You get the picture. Anyways, why would I bring that taxonomy up? Brienne is good, clearly good. Intelligence, closer to average. Very, very loyal. Doesn't always think her plans through. Motivated far more by honor than what is going to work out best for her. And that is what has happened here. But she is still like strong enough to fight her way out of a very tricky situation. Man, if you weren't already convinced by the classic Brienne the Hound fight in the last season finale that Gwendolyn Christie could be a great action hero, you got to be convinced here. She is destroying. Oh my god. She's not just big, but she, she can like really sell the moves. It's impressive for her. But at the end of the day, even if she really played her cards right... Unless she straight up kidnapped Sansa, I don't think Sansa was really going anywhere. Just like Arya, Sansa has learned to be pretty distrustful of anybody who's ever been remotely loyal to House Lannister, as well she should be. And Brienne is at least starting to figure that out. But she's not giving up. She's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, though. What does she do now? Littlefinger's getting married to someone. That detail might have skipped past... It skipped past B, almost... Littlefinger's getting married to someone. I haven't exactly been spoiled, but I've heard a pretty strong fan theory as to whom, which I will not say here. But it's one of those moments where we've now moved far past what's going on in the books. Whatever is going, whatever convergence Brienne and Podrick and Littlefinger and Sansa are going to happen upon, it's just, it's far, far away from book territory and potentially pretty exciting. Also moving far away from book territory, and possibly even more exciting, is Jamie and Bronn heading to Dorne. If I recall correctly from the books, Jamie was basically treating with various families who were still kind of mad at the Lannisters and trying to like work out peace deals, and man, his story got real boring real fast. Especially since most of, uh, most of his time appeared to be spent with, I'm blanking, the, uh, the executioner who has his tongue missing which didn't happen for perhaps obvious dramatic purposes here. This works because the groundwork for the Jamie Braun pairing was set so well last season. We believe they know each other and trust each other. At the very least, that Jamie trusts Braun. Who knows if Braun trusts anybody? And actually scratch that. I feel like Braun trusts basically everybody to be 
mostly predictable. Same way he trusts Lawless to be pretty predictable and not think too much about the innuendo about what he's saying about her sister. Nice Lawless Stokeworth appearance, too. <laughs> now, in the book, she was painted as like more than a simpleton, but like bordering on mentally challenged. Here it's clear, no, she's just kind of ditzy. Kind of ditzy would still get upset if her sister was somehow like murdered or even befell a suspicious accident. She might figure out something's up. But it appears to be moot anyways because Jamie's like, hey, Bron, you know what happens to you in the books? I'm throwing that out the window because I want you to come with me because I need something interesting to do. And that thing is going to Dorne. And Bron says, do I have a choice? When you are promising me castles, what the hell? And with that, I think we appear to be abandoning the Lala Stokeworth storyline, probably indefinitely, which is fine. At least they gave us a little cameo. I love the way the show is, with certain storylines, just kind of planting little references to keep the diehards satisfied. For instance, we don't need, like, a full-on Robert Strong storyline. It's enough to just hear Kyburn say, Could I have that dwarf head? I could use it for my work. The implication of that is chilling enough. We don't actually need to see what's going on or spend too much time on it. It's a canny way to get like a lot of different plot strands going at the same time without feeling overwhelming. Do not doubt the Game of Thrones writers, guys. These people are so savvy. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself with that. Let's talk about Dorne, huh? Now, Oberyn Martell, always a fan favorite. He was only around for half a book. He didn't have enough time to make a huge impression on book readers. In the show, when his half of a book got stretched out to full season status, some storylines kind of suffered because they lost a bit of narrative momentum. His storyline, meanwhile, went from a bit of a side path to becoming fully supercharged. And he's played with such intelligence and wit and energy by Pedro Pascal that his character, I think, took off beyond any Game of Thrones fan's expectations. With his death being, like, the most shocking, heartbreaking thing to happen on the show since Ned Stark's death, and yes, I'm including the Red Wedding. But he'd already done his job. I think the Martell name was pretty memorably seared into viewers' minds. And anybody who knows that the Martells wanted vengeance against the Lannisters figure they now gotta be spelling blood and gotta think, man, what other badasses does Dornhand the Martells have in store? Excellently setting up excitement for this stuff. In a way that I think they could not possibly do if they started introducing various feuding Greyjoys. For example, the show fans just aren't gonna care. But we care here, and we only got we only got glimpses. We got to see that this place is indeed sunny, as Sunspear should be, and beautiful in a very Spanish way, as is appropriate. And we got to meet Doran Martell, Oberyn's brother, who isn't all gouty. A little disappointing. I wanted to see him hobbling around on his gout foot. Maybe I don't know. Maybe he is. You know, I don't actually know if we got to see his feet. But it's so unlike some of the other like physical changes they've made. You know, not making Dario Noharis like a blue makeup crazy person. This one, I feel like we are missing something because it was. It's that physical characteristic was so indicative of Doran's character. Very, very, very slow. Very, very, very patient. Seems weak to the people who don't know him well. It doesn't seem like Ilaria Sand is showing him much respect in this scene. She's understandably upset. 
But I think as time goes on, we're going to see this dude is a stronger ruler than you would think. He doesn't say what his plans are going to be. He plays things close to the vest. He remains calm even in the face of his brother's death. But he's crafty. He plays the long game. He's almost Obama-like. Maybe Dorn is America. Nah. No, it's not. Let Dorn be its own thing, Josh. A lot of things were going on this episode. We checked in with Tyrion and Varys again, too? And what's shaping up to be the Arya and the Hound story for this season? Meaning that not necessarily a whole lot of plot happens with them. We just get to continue seeing them square off and have philosophical discussions about the nature of ethics and the nature of power, etc., etc., etc. It's good. I mean, it's good in the sense the show needs a story like that. But Tyrion is Game of Thrones' most dynamic character. He's capable of such change, such good and such evil, and his fate in life is constantly changing. He's a character who I think we really need to see forward momentum with to stay invested in. And I didn't see a whole lot in this scene that wasn't essentially a repeat of last week's two scenes. As great as it is to see these two actors square off and to see Tyrion play very drunk, Ultimately, the only thing I really find myself wanting to say about this is I hope we get to Marine Fast. Up, oh, scratch that. One more thing. I also want to say how awesome that smash cut is. She can't kill every dwarf within 100 miles, can she? Straight to Dwarf Severed Head. Apparently, she can. Because this is Cersei's castle now, bitches. Last episode, we were still in mourning. This episode, we're seeing Cersei flexing her power for the first time and showing the way she's essentially going to rule from here on out by surrounding herself with loyalists and yes-men who will do whatever she wants because her word is not to be questioned. Trust me, I think she knew Uncle Kevin Lannister. I know his name is Kevan. It's still funny that his name is basically Kevin. So I'm just going to call him Kevin. She knew that Uncle Kevin was not going to take that position. I think she had a very good idea. That's completely fine with her. She may not be happy that Tywin's dead exactly. I wouldn't say she is, because I think she's terrified that the forces that killed Tywin, more specifically her little brother, are going to come after her next. But it, but she, I think she is still happy not having some parental-type authority commanding her what to do. And I don't think she particularly wants Uncle Kevin around. Kevin, who was, an under, I think, an underappreciated minor character from the books, not as ruthless or as evil as his brother, not to be best with exactly either. He was just less ambitious. And he knows exactly what Cersei is doing, and he'll have no part in it, and Cersei says, good. I'll make Kyburn my bastard whisperers. Because Kyburn is going to make me a magic zombie man. With the brain of a dwarf in the body of the mountain. Whoa. I could be a circus barker. As long as I have mountain dwarf man in my tent. What am I talking about? Pycelle wants more, but Pycelle's easily pushed around, and Mace Tyrell is just happy that people think anything of him. And that's that. Doesn't really matter that Cersei's having her power questions, because Uncle Kev can't really do much about it. Cersei's in power now. Okay, so here in this next scene, where we have uh, Gilly and Shireen talking, as Shireen is using her teacher's superpower that she already used on Davos to teach Gilly how to read, at the very least what S is. Sam is off in the corner being a huge super geek. Probably reads all the S's. S's all the time. Big show off. Possibly should be an inkling to Sam that 
a relationship between a guy like him who's really into books and a woman who's just probably never really going to be able to reach that level with him is mismatched in some sad ways. But he's not really thinking about that right now. He's got bigger fish to fry. Like the upcoming election. But the bigger point here is I came up with a possibly crazy theory during this little discussion about grayscale. From Gilly describing what happened when two of her sisters got grayscale at Craster's Keep. And they just kind of left him outside. But they got covered with this, you know, gray-looking crust. And eventually became kind of inhuman. I thought, hey, that sounds a little like what happened to that baby they left outside of Craster's Keep last season. Got captured by the White Walkers. Because when the White Walker touched the baby, his skin started turning all white and crazy. Like he was turning into a baby White Walker. What if Grayscale is the White Walker disease? Do you see what I just did? What if that's true? It's clear everybody knows about it in the North, right? What if, like, what if Shireen was turning into a white walker and then they stopped her? Guys, I figured it out. Trust me, trust me. Come on. Let me have this. I'm never the guy who comes up with crazy fan theories, but I want this to be right. Let me, we can call it, it'll be my one theory. Like, guys who die of a disease nobody's ever had before get their one disease. Just let this be my thing. Josh's theory. If it turns out to be right, you guys all owe me like a six-pack of Cokes. What happens next? This episode was packed with stuff, guys. I'm serious. Stannis offers John the name John Stark and position Lord of Winterfell? Now, we've seen this before. Stannis doesn't seem to respect a whole lot of people. So when Stannis finds somebody he does respect, he basically starts stripping all over himself to find a way to like bring them into the fold. Basically, anybody who seems vaguely smart and has an interest in actually hanging out with sad bastard Stannis. Davos helps Stannis out. Stannis, being Stannis, cuts half his fingers off, but then offers him a really nice position, and Davos takes it. Because Stannis, he doesn't seem like an old softy, but he's basically willing to do anything to anybody who shows him, you know, a little bit of love. Melisandre showed him more than a little bit of love, and Stannis is, like, completely within her thrall. He's weak when it comes to these kind of social matters. And Jon Snow is a kid. But Stannis just made Jon Snow, who he hasn't known very long, a huge offer. He doesn't know Jon Snow like we know Jon Snow, though. And was it even a question? Of course we do that Jon Snow would turn that down. Because Jon Snow's super honest and super honorable. And yes, he's doing... It's almost cliched where he's doing the sulking hero thing where Sam, you know, nominates him for Commander of the Night's Watch. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to sit here and pout and be sad, goth snow which of course just endears him more to the other men it's a little bit of a cliche but it does make him a more endearing character i think that he is that honestly selfless that moment is kind of him in some karmic way proving himself ready to lead the night's watch and actually i kind of miss that when the in the books they really drew out the election shenanigans and i'm sure i'm the only person who will say that but it's like watching like you know Westerosi political machinations are just fun. I don't care. It's like watching that movie, the movie Lincoln, which is all about what Lincoln had to do to get the Emancipation Proclamation passed. You know, bribing senators and stuff. That stuff is a lot of fun. It would have been nice to see that play out over an episode or two. 
Nonetheless, it was still great to see this sequence on screen. They played out all the conflicts pretty succinctly, and now Jon Snow is just Lord Commander. And now I don't really know where his story goes. I mean, I have one idea, but I don't think they're going to go there. You guys know what I'm talking about. Just one more location we got to talk about, guys. We got to talk about what's going on in Marine, where Daenerys has steadily built her own small council chamber. After a short scene with uh, Grey Worm and Dario, where Dario, this, Dario 2 at least, I don't think Dario 1 could have pulled this off. But Dario 2 is almost, he's like the Han Solo of Marine at this point. He's just devil make here, and then he's just kind of like stabbing dudes, and they fall out of the wall. He's got super great instincts, and he look, makes it look so cool. You can see what Danny sees in the guy, even if he's not an especially great advisor. We've got him on the council chamber, along with a representative of the slaves, a representative of the masters, Barristan Selmy, who tells this story about the Mad King that clearly shakes Daenerys. It's not a bad council. It's certainly more balanced than Cersei's council, and a little less uh, self-serving and Machiavellian than the ones that Littlefinger and Varys were on. But still, you know you're missing that Jorah. Jorah has been around through this whole journey, and he's been giving you some straight-up really good advice this whole time. And you were thriving when he was around. And now you are making some serious mistakes. She clearly took what Barristan was saying about Eris the Mad King to heart. She must recognize that there is a kind of bloodthirstiness inside of her. As much as she is Misa and caring and all heart. As much as she's clearly not her father. There are those moments where her, like, her eyes go cold and she says, I will answer justice with justice and decides to nail 150 Miranese masters to crosses. She is capable of atrocities, even if her motives are better. So she takes that message to heart, but the reason it's a little bit disheartening that she takes that message to heart is because we've seen what Daenerys' number one issue as a leader is so far. It is what they would call circa 2004 flip-flopping, being wishy-washy. Basically, the most recent person to deliver her a really passionate speech about why they want her to do something is the person she listens to and determines whether she'll go with the justice direction or the mercy direction. She has, as Tywin Lannister would say, the wisdom to listen to her advisors, but not quite the backbone yet to have her own code and really stick by it. She's a little bit pushing where the winds blow. That's why it seemed at first like a real positive character development for her leadership skills when we have the slave representative on the council kill the son of the harpy who was awaiting trial, and then, you know, do the whole plead in front of Daenerys, thinking, I'm sure he'll show, I'm sure Misa will show me mercy the same way she showed Hizdar Zolorak mercy and took her, his dad down, and that guy was a master. I'm sure if I just say, I did it for you, Khaleesi, I delivered justice when you couldn't because your hands were tied. I love you. That would be enough to melt her heart. And it almost looked like it was going to. God accredited Amelia Clark with her acting throughout this episode. Really, really pretty stellar. Completely selling every emotion she felt while remaining totally strong. Because she ultimately responded to that speech by saying, The law is the law. In that very Daenerys way. But she's got to mix it up with a little bit of the Targaryen crazy, of course. She can't just, like, chop the guy's head off and be done with it. She has to go out in public and bring, like, every single Miranese former slave out and tell them exactly what she's going to do. 
and wait for an agonizing period as they're shouting, mercy, 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 and then kill him. If you're keeping track, Daenerys is also average good. And without great advisors, she will consistently make dumb decisions. It's more forgivable in this case because of her youth. And the fact it's hard to rule a kingdom of foreigners. She is learning. I was about to say this was an example of her learning, but because she decided to turn the guy into a public example, it went entirely sour on her. And now the kingdom is rioting. Nice going. I just can't do anything right today. Gosh. I get it, D. I feel you. I'm on your side. You have the charisma. You have everything Vera said. You do have good instincts and a good heart and the ability to lead thousands and motivate people to worship you. If you can't get Jorah, man, Tyrion would be great by her side, wouldn't he? Daenerys' queen Tyrion his hand? Doing all the leadership stuff and all the dirty work while she just does all the inspirational stuff? That is like a match made in heaven. But it's not meant to be yet. Hopefully Daenerys can hold on, just hold on a little bit longer. We get to see Drogon this episode. And that moment when, first of all, he's absolutely, completely majestic looking and only one of her dragons who doesn't hate her. And she reaches out and reaches up to him and almost touches him but doesn't quite. And looking exactly the same way her citizens did crying out for mercy. It's like she is saying to the heavens, mercy, take mercy on me. I'm trying to do good in this world. And the heavens essentially say, ask me later, and fly off. So far, I gotta say, this Miranese stuff has been maybe the most engrossing material of the season. I was not necessarily prepared to say that, but I've become really, I'm becoming especially invested in Daenerys' storyline and trying to figure out how the hell she will get out of this mess and who might join her before the season is up. Man, a lot to get through this episode, but great TV, really. Last week was good TV. This was great TV. And now I can officially say Game of Thrones is back. Welcome back. I have missed you. I'm going to be so sad when the next eight weeks are over. There's nothing else that can provide the fix I get from this show. I don't know what it is. Anyway, you don't need to hear me wax more ripsodic about this show. Suffice to say... I'm glad I was able to crank this event one out. I cranked it out a little bit early. I was able to because I got the episode early. I know I'll be able to do that for the next two episodes, or at least I hope I will. After that, I don't know. These might start coming out later. But for now, you're getting some on-time GOT talk from me, your boy, Josh. I'm working on some other cool projects that I may announce here soon. In the meantime, keep following me on Twitter at Radio TFB. And check out some of the great shows on the Earwolf and Wolf Pop networks. Those guys, they make some really good podcasts, I gotta say. Until next time, Valar Morgulis. <laughs>